Hello, my name is Matthew Kidman and welcome to the latest episode of Success and More Interesting Stuff. The Australian commercial property sector was in a mess in the mid-1990s. The recession we had to have saw overgib properties crash in value. Investors were ropeable, stuck in illiquid structures, unable to withdraw their money, they were suffering big losses. Sniffing an opportunity, a young investment banker at SBC named Andrew Pridham got to work. He believed listed property assets on the ASX gave investors liquidity and the opportunity for companies to raise much needed capital. He was so successful that it wasn't long before he had been promoted to head of global property at international merchant bank UBS. He relocated to London and was now playing in the big league. But at the age of 35, he was ready to head back to Australia and retire, a short but highly successful career. Retirement, like most things in Pridham's life, was dealt with quickly. And after a few months, he was back at his desk advising clients. US investment bank, JP Morgan, noticed he'd reappeared on the domestic scene and bought his business. For the next six years, he was a senior executive at the American behemoth. Restless, Pridham pivoted again. This time, he convinced a former American UBS colleague, Ken Mollis, to create Mollis Australia, with the two becoming the largest shareholders. Mollis Australia would go on to become an investment bank, brokerage house, and an asset manager, a mini Macquarie bank of sorts. Pridham rapidly grew the business, seizing an opportunity to tap into a new source of funding called the Significant Investor Visa Program. Mollus Australia floated on the ASX in 2017. The market valuation soon topped the 1 billion mark. By 2020 though, Pridham was ready to retire again, handing over the day-to-day running of the business to Chris Wyke and Julian Biggins. He remains the vice chairman and largest shareholder. In the meantime, he has been busy with some extracurricular activities as chairman of the Sydney Swans and penning a book about leadership called What Matters. I first interacted with Andrew in the mid-1990s when I was a journalist at the SMH. When it came to property, the only person to speak to was Andrew Pridham. Hello, Andrew. I'm not sure I remember those days, but I do remember you were incredibly hard to get hold of. I can't, can't even remember last week. Thanks, Matthew. <laughs> well, maybe you give us a bit of a colour around those early to mid-1990s and where property was at, because it was a disaster for a lot of investors. We'd had high interest rates and property asset values were down. You saw it as an opportunity. Well, at the time, I don't know if I saw it as an opportunity, but uh, we had had to find something to to, uh, to do. Things were pretty bleak in the in the recession in the early nineties, and it's very difficult now when you look at today's world to consider that the, those were days when you could not get a loan from a bank. Um, you could deposit money at eighteen uh, percent. Real estate just did not transact. There were there were as you as you mentioned there were the unlisted property trust sector, which was huge with the Armstrong Joneses and the Growth Equities Mutuals of the world. Heiner Brothers were another one. So that there was a situation where property was in a real mess and no one really knew how to fix it. And uh, I didn't really either, but <laughs> I had- <laughs> but, a, but there was an opportunity to go from, as you, as you and others saw it, from private to public. That's right. I mean, in the, there were a lot of uh, ideas that were floated, I guess that's probably the wrong word, but they floated at the time in terms of how you could resolve these issues where basically you had- Ownership vehicles owning commercial property or shopping centres or, or any type of real, you know, real estate, commercial real estate, and they were providing, in some instances, uh, weekly liquidity. And clearly, you can't go and sell a shopping centre in a week. So there was a mismatch between, you know, the expectations of the investors, and it really wasn't a product at that time that was fit for purpose. And there were all sorts of ideas put forward as to how it could be resolved and. I was just firmly of the view, I guess, you know, you don't have many good ideas in your life, but I had I had one really strong, you know, idea and conviction was that the solution was really straightforward, which was to list them and let the market decide what the units are worth. And I was fortunate enough to uh, 
to convince a few you know, clients to to do that. Like many things in life, once you, you get, a, I guess, a brand name for doing things, everyone comes to you and you become the centre of gravity. You get, you so get was, momentum. But the, the good thing was back then was the markets were reopening in 93, 94 as we came out of the recession. So there was an opportunity. But who, who else was it? It was SBC at the time, I think. Who else was there with you working hard, came up with this idea? Because at that stage, that was the main game in town, especially for investment bankers. Yeah, look, it, it back back then- uh, And you were young. Yeah, I was I was very young. I was in my, um, I don't know what it was. Late early, 20s? Early, probably early 20s at that stage. <laughs> we had a great team of people that involved in real estate. Being a, a property, it was back then it was called property and not real estate. Being a property banker at an investment bank was not a prestigious position to be in. I can assure you, it was it was the um, bottom of the pile in terms of the the very snobbish investment banking world. If you weren't in in mergers and acquisitions, that and, quickly changed, I gather. Well, it it did because what what it became was was the highest generate revenue generator in in investment banking, and it was also a time in in banking that typically investment banks didn't approach the markets by sector. They typically approached it by product and mergers and acquisitions and equity capital markets. And so everyone in those days, in Australia anyway, was a generalist. And I was firmly of the view that it was better to be really, really knowledgeable in one sector and and therefore expert. And so my competitors at the time uh, were typically investment bankers who might be doing telcos one day, right. uh, healthcare the next, real estate the next. And I just knew a lot more about it. And I had a, a great team working with a great team, people, names people like John Carter and uh, Peter Crossing. And there were numerous people. And as as we became more successful, we hired a lot of people, all real estate backgrounds typically. And a lot of them actually went to university with me in, in Adelaide. So I actually drained South Australia of a fair <laughs> bit of real estate talent. And, uh, and uh, fortunately, they all remain good friends today. Terrific. I remember very clearly, I got the unfortunate job of filling in as commercial property editor at the Sydney Morning Herald. We'd lost our writer and and my boss, Glenn Bird, said, well, you can do it. And I said, what about my other job? He goes, you can do both for the moment. And I was ringing, I had no idea, I was ringing around. And I do remember a few short conversations with you. You were obviously very busy and you used to say to me, when I'm ready, I'll tell you, stop ringing me. (laughs) So it was pretty hectic. Yeah, I like like to be blunt, but, uh, you know, we worked incredibly hard and I look back and just how hard we did work and I can remember many, many transactions where uh, literally worked through the nights, you know, night after night, didn't get any sleep. And it was a very stressful but exciting time looking back. But when you're when you're involved in it, you don't look at the excitement so much. It's just you go from transaction to transaction. Now, I've got a lot of great stories now, but at the time it was it was very stressful, but um, you know, clearly very rewarding. I should have been calling after you had a good night's sleep. I probably got it the wrong You time. might not have got me. <laughs> we probably didn't have mobile phones back then. No, we didn't, definitely didn't. <laughs> well, let's go back. You talked a bit about Adelaide then, born in Adelaide and a bit of a backwater in terms of Australian business. What was the interest? Was there was the family in business? What, what was the background? What were the conversations like at home? What, what piqued your interest as a young person? Yeah, it's a bit harsh calling Adelaide a backwater, <laughs> I must say. I had a very normal, happy, middle-class uh, upbringing. My, my, uh, my father was, uh, he actually worked in uh, chemicals or FH folding, pharmaceuticals, and in, Good in South man- Australian company in, in management, yeah, exactly. You know, our family we we had we owned a few apartments uh, as investments. You know, my parents were very much believers in owning real estate, and I used to you know got, I probably got my start in real estate by mowing lawns. Never afraid to work hard. I like I like mowing lawns, getting some cash. Then that I progressed into I guess on weekends if there were empty units, I would would 
do the vetting of tenants and ask them if they had a job. And they probably thought it was pretty funny having a 16-year-old asking them what, what they earned and whether they could afford to pay rent. So that was really my interest. And then when I finished university, I was actually going to do law like you did. And I went to the open day at Adelaide University and uh, sat in a room, a hall full of potential lawyers, and I decided I didn't want to do law, which I think you'd probably tell me was a good decision. Good decision, Good Andrew. decision. I think it was one of my better ones. <laughs> and uh, I thought, well, I, I then got the BRW out, remember that magazine, the Business yep. Review Weekly, and looked at the Rich 200 list or whatever it was. Most of them seemed to be real estate people, so I thought, well, I'll do that. I know a bit about real estate. I'll it's do a well-worn path in Australia. Yeah, well, own real estate, you'll get wealthy. It, it, that's right, and and I look back on that, and a lot of the names on that uh, the rich list back then ended up becoming clients. So um, you know th that was a bit of a thrill to meet people who uh, like Frank Lowy, for example. So um, that's how I ventured into uh, real estate. So what course did you actually do? If you you turned away from law, what did you end up studying? Yeah, and how did it help you? University of South Australia, Bachelor of Applied Science in called Property Resource Management. It's just a rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? <laughs> and it was at, at the time it was it was definitely the leading real estate course in Australia and I think that that's you know widely acknowledged and the the principal lecturers were very um, advanced in what they were thinking about real estate and the types of talking about things like um, I don't know if you've heard of them computers, regression analysis, all sorts of uh, statistics cutting edge cutting edge, cutting edge, internal rates of return, the IRR. Um, and all of these things now just seem pedestrian, but at the was time- Was that an eye-opener for you at the time? Oh, it was, it was challenging, but it was really good because when we, you know, to learn to do things very technically, discounted cash flows, and these things in real estate weren't really what was done. It was much more basic in gut feel type approach to real estate. And to have been taught these sort of new technical analysis tools, if you like, and then to be let loose in the workforce, and I worked part-time at Jones Lang- uh, wouldn't it was called then? And very quickly, I, you know, the people who I worked with would go, well, "That's interesting. How do you do that?" And then I could do stuff. I could, I knew how to build computers and do computer stuff. So I think that helped accelerate what I was doing because I just had, you know, good knowledge, not really just through luck. That I went did a course that that taught it. University invariably for a lot of people is somewhere they can grow up, become an adult, have a lot of fun, get through your course, and then decide what you're going to do. But it sounds like it was pretty invaluable information that you learnt and that you could use going forward. Yeah, the course I did, and it was a, back in those days, you sort of started the course, uh, it was a three-year course, but I ended up doing taking four because I went part-time. But you went through with a group of you know people who were um, same age, largely, not, not totally, but same age, and you went through year by year. So it's very different than university today when people are sort of coming and going, there's online. It was very much face-to-face -face teaching. There was no online. Uh, there wasn't really, there was barely computers. And uh, so we, you know, we, we worked hard. We learned a lot of stuff really, you know, that was, as I said, was pretty cutting edge, but we had a lot of fun. I mean, we used to have an annual trip, um, field trip where we'd go and study, whether it was rural studies or we had a trip to Sydney. A lot of us used to say it was the best footy trips we'd ever been on. So it was, <laughs> it was fun, but we learned a lot. Well, I won't dig into that. What, what goes on tour stays on tour, as we know. So you finish university, you've got a good network of people around your own age group. You stay in Adelaide. Is that the first step? Get a job there? Is that how you're thinking? Well, I was working in commercial real estate at Jones Lang, as I, as I mentioned. And uh, the day I graduated and the, the day after I graduated, I jumped on a, a plane and I'd uh, I'd got a job in Sydney. I um, only did it really because one of my friends who I went to uni with did the same thing. So I thought, oh, I might as well do that too. It wasn't a lot of thought behind it, I can tell you. What year is this? Uh, this would have been 1989, I think it was, early 89. 
Um, I played my last few amateur games of, of AFL, um, which was that was probably the hardest. That was the hardest decision for me to move to Sydney. Was I love playing football? And, and, what position? Uh, usually on the bench, but I, I certainly I love the <laughs> Inter- interchange. I love the bench it. anymore. Yeah, the oranges were great, but no, I, I was I, that was a big consideration. And moving away from family and friends was you know not something that's an easy thing to do. And I see a lot of people doing it now. It's not easy. In fact, I often say to whether it's people involved in football or kids of friends of mine when they move interstate, it really is hard and, and there's always that draw to go home. But I always resisted it because I felt that Sydney was a, a one a great place and it was really, you know, for me, in terms of my career, it's where I should be. So, um, you know, it was, it was a great move and I'm really glad I did it. And what was that job? My original job was at a company called CapCount and I was a assistant development manager they had a, a listed property trust, ironically, mm-hmm. uh, which is now part of the Goodman Group, and I was an I was an analyst there. And soon after I, I got to Sydney, that was a great job working with some great people. It was um, Peter Kernahan, if you remember Peter, um, you know, very inspirational guy. And I hadn't been there that long, and I I contracted um, glandular fever. I was really sick. <laughs> I was really sick. Whilst I was sick, I just sort of started thinking, well, I'm a little bit bored doing what I'm doing. Uh, man, you know, managing a property trust was a bit. Um, every day was the same sort of thing. So I decided I'd do something else. And I, I saw an ad in the paper and, and I got interviewed and uh, I, got, I got home and there was a message on my answering machine. And for, for those that don't know, that's <laughs> what you used to do on your telephone at home. It would uh, You'd have a tape and say, thank you for calling. I'm currently not here. And the message was, yes, you've got the job. And I thought, that's great. And my flatmate said, what, what's the company? And I said, I actually don't know what they do. <laughs> I actually don't. I didn't really know. It was an investment bank, and I didn't really know what that meant. I talked about doing deals that ultimately became working at at Wardley HSBC. What the opportunity was? You thought that there's more transactions, there's more to do day to day, more variety. It was interesting being in in deal flow. I didn't quite know what it meant. You know, to be perfectly honest, there was also an element that they offered me a lot of money. And I thought, well, that's good. Okay. What's a lot okay. these days? What, what well, I, I, I can't quite remember, but I, rem- I remember when I joined Wardley, I had another job offer from uh, General Property Trust, mm-hmm. remember? And that was for $50,000 a year. And I remember, I don't know why I remember that, but I remember it. And I, I chose Wardley over GPT, and they Wardley paid me less, but I thought it would be a, a, a more interesting career. So I went. I went, didn't go for the money. I went for what I thought would be more interesting, and and I worked with amazing people. It was a really interesting time to be in. Well, Wardley Ranking were a big presence in the Australian market with the entrepreneurs. Huge. I mean, our client list was blue chip as they come. I mean, it was Christopher Scase, <laughs> Alan Bond, John Elliott, you, you name it. National Safety Council. I think. Well, they were blue chip in those days. Just they, took they, a couple they, of years they to realise they, they, they weren't. They were, they were till they weren't. Um, but it was to, to say the least. It was interesting. Work with great people. You met um, all those people, Alan Bond and John Elliott. Yes, and uh, you know that was, you know, they were the the common theme with all of these entrepreneurs is that great salesmen, mm-hmm. unbelievably good salesmen. And did you learn anything from that when you're trying to convince people you've got to sell? I think what you what you learn when you see things go wrong is that you've got to always have um, an eye to risk management and not just keep rolling the dice hoping you're going to get a seven. So I think I certainly learned that, but I also learned the importance of. Uh, being able to be a good communicator and and good at selling and and selling a story and that's what you know those entre- that's the, the common theme the entrepreneurs had that they could sell a great story. Mm. Um, and what were you doing at Wardley? Were you actually signing off on loans or you were assessing the approaches and who who was good good client and who wasn't? Well, I was very junior. Remember just remembering that. 
um, I used to I used to do a lot of analysis um, on on loans and and you know, transactions whether it was lending money to on property or you know, we did all sorts of things. It was it was the original sort of you know merchant banking where we we would do all sorts of interesting um, project financings, principal deals for clients. So it was a lot of mainly it was analysis. Negotiating mandate agreements was something I became a specialist in, right. but I was very junior. So at, I wasn't. at that time, given you were so young and it was your first look at the commercial world, did you realise that what was going on was unusually buoyant, and that the deals that were being struck did have risk attached to them? It wasn't really that. By the time I got there, it wasn't that buoyant. It was actually starting to you know, fray pretty quickly. So a lot of you know what I was involved in was was actually trying to unwind things. In fact, that were not going well. I mean, this at this stage, you know, I, meeting with you know Alan Bond, it was when um, he was in trouble. A lot of the entrepreneurs at this point were were really struggling. I remember the the front page. I think it must have been BRW. One of the magazines was backs to the wall with Christopher Scase, and he was you know he was you know in trouble when he had the Mirage Resorts, and mm-hmm. so I was looking at these assets, and off typically they'd be coming and wanting to refinance them or wanting to sell them. And who was hardest to deal with among that group? Uh, Oh, I, I can't remember. I mean, I don't think uh, I wasn't senior enough to to really know that. All I, all I know is I'd sit in meetings and take notes and 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 jot things down and and look like I knew what I was doing. Watching corporate Australian history. Well, it's a bit like that. It was that you you look back and uh, it was a pretty interesting time. Um, but again, at the t- at the time as it's going on, it's just it's all I knew. So I just thought that that that's what it, you know that's what business was about. And Wortley soon after, once a lot of those customers obviously got into trouble, retreated from Australia, and then, then you made the move across to SBC. Is that is that the- Demeeks Barry Samuel Montague, um, another name that rolls off the tongue, it used to, <laughs> uh, DBSM. So my boss at uh, at Wardley, who I'm still very close to, and he you know he, he's probably my major mentor, by the name of Peter Crossing. He was actually made redundant from Wardley, as was most of my department. I was one of the few left for some reason. He kept sort of saying, why don't you come and I've now gone to- DBSM, why don't you come and join me? So I did, and eventually he convinced me, and I went there. And I was the real estate, the property department at that stage with Peter, but he was doing all sorts of, he was doing project financing. So I was sort of head of property by default because I was the only one there and uh, trying to eke out a living and, and do deals in when the recession hit in 91. And that was, you know, other than the, the GFC, um, which was a doozy, I can tell you, that the recession of 91, trying to actually do do deals was very difficult. The the revenue in the at DBSM that year was incredibly low. And I just, because real estate and property was in such a perilous state, because of the, particularly because of the unlisted property trust, but also just generally with interest rates being so high, you know, I did come up with some um, some deals and did some deals and what was your first? The first deal of note was actually for GPT. Ironically, it was for the person at GPT I worked with at Wardley. He went to GPT and he got the name of Don Marples, another friend of mine. And he was saying, "Well, we want to buy. I can't remember what else they wanted to buy a shopping centre or something. It's all fades in time, but we don't know how to finance it because we can't raise equity. We can't. You know, it's very difficult. Just from reading some things that other in other." Parts of the financial markets that had happened. I don't know if you remember. We did a debenture, one hundred and twenty million dollar debenture issue with options, and it was a very, you know, at this at that time complex structure which we put together. High yield? Um, it wasn't high yield. It was it was reasonably low yield because of the the nature of the option. The options had real value. It was. A, I won't go into it on a podcast because I'll bore everyone. <laughs> but the package was it was very innovative, and we we did that um, for them for GPT, which is a blue chip name. 
you know, particularly in those days with blue chip names. So I think the rest of the market, DBSM, why are they doing deals for blue chip companies? They, you know, they, they just don't do that. And it just sort of gained momentum because then other property trusts would come and say- But well, give, given the size of your firm, you couldn't have underwritten anything like yeah, that? Yeah, well, no, we had, we had real capacity. Remember, we had Midland Bank um, when it was DBSM and then- Midland sold out to Swiss Bank, which then ultimately merged with UBS, and that's how it became UBS. We had significant balance sheet. What we didn't have typically was clients. We had really smart people. Ultimately, when Swiss um, SBC Demix Barry merged with um, Potter Warburg, when Warburg was acquired by UBS or SBC, I can't remember. We used to always look at it that SBC had a lot of the smart, aggressive people and, and Potter Warburg had all of the clients. Yeah. <laughs> and we sort of put them together and it worked pretty well. And, you know, from that, you, you know, people like Chris Mackay's, um, Matthew Grounds's, those sort of people were- The gentleman like Baron Jerry these days? Yeah, they were contemporaries. Who was running SBC, Demix Barry, at that stage? Who was the CEO? Uh, the CEO was, at one point, it was a guy by the name of Wayne Peters, who's now a fund manager in Hong, Hong Kong. Kong. yep. And it, someone by the name of Clive Standish. It changed over time. And they were good to work with. They were encouraging. A young guy who was doing innovative deals in the property sector, which, as you said, was probably the not, not the most glamorous part of investment banking at the time. To be honest, I'd say they were begrudging. I was very young, and I was probably aggressive in the sense that I was, you know, I felt I'm generating a fair bit of the revenue here, and I'm not seeing a lot coming back. So I was probably- That's a blight of all investment. Investment bankers after well, a while. I was probably a bit of a pest. <laughs> you were quick on the pickup. I, I was there for many years. I was there for well over a decade, so I was loyal. But I think they probably, in some ways, thought, "Who is this upstart? And he's in property. What's property all about? Why?" And in fact, one of one of the senior people that when I joined DBSM, a guy by the name of Steve Higgs, who is a friend of mine these days, he he commented. He said, "When I joined, he said, why are we hiring this guy? He didn't go to, even go to a property university.'" <laughs> and uh, I do, I do remind him that within about three years, he was working for me. So, But he makes a very good point there because investment banking is at the high end and there's a lot of smart, sharp salespeople and innovative people. So you didn't feel uncomfortable in that environment given that your background wasn't from that normal path as he's making a point there. I think I did. I think anyone feels a bit uncomfortable when you're viewed as sort of coming from the outside and that, you know, that I certainly felt that. Um, there was there was certainly a lot of snobbery, if, you know, with people who went to Sydney Uni or wherever, and they were in mergers and acquisitions, and they'd look down on property people at the time. So you sort of feel it, but it also puts a bit of grit into you, and you know, I don't mind being kind of determination. Yeah. And so then then it came along that we got out of the recession, markets reopened. There was the private to public capacity, as we talked a bit about earlier, Armstrong Jones and a few others that you facilitated. That was really the golden era, I gather. Yeah, it was. I mean, it was a period where there was, it was the great securitization of real estate really in Australia, where the property trust industry or REIT industry, as it's now called, really blossomed and, and you, 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 know, you saw a great transfer of real estate from, for example, within the, um, the life companies, the AMPs, the National Mutuals of the world. Um, a transition of the assets being in those hands or even in private hands into the public markets. You know, I had a fantastic relationship with most of the large players and particularly people like, you know, Westfield. I was very close with, you know, Westfield. I used to spend a lot of time with um, the Lowys and, and, and the executives there and we did all sorts of amazing things all over the world. And really. did you learn a lot from them? Oh, an unbelievable amount. I mean, they're seriously, you know, world-class operators. Frank Lowy, you know, his sons, you know, really, you'd, you'd never meet people more engaged in business than, than they, you know, were as a family at that time in particular. 
uh, and that's globally, you know, global vision. You know, we were doing things obviously a lot in the US, we were doing things in the UK. And why would they listen to someone young from an investment bank like yourself? Or, or did you did you have to temper it down with the lowies and just facilitate what they were thinking? Did it work differently? It works like it works with clients If you as you build a good relationship with them. There's got to be mutual respect. You know, I certainly had a lot of respect for them. I had a lot of respect for the vast majority of my clients. And you, you can't do anything as an advisor unless the, you know, the clients make the decisions. People always forget, advisors often forget, it's not the advisor. Um, you're there to, to guide, to give advice, to put forward solutions, um, not to come up with problems, um, to identify different ways of doing things. And that's that's the relationship we had. And again, you know, a, a big difference back, certainly back in the early to mid-90s, is information wasn't as readily available as it is today. It was not a commodity. So the bigger market share that we had in real estate at the time, the more information we had because we knew who was doing what, we knew why, we knew what the drivers were. So in terms of you know whether it was Westfield or whoever it may have been as a client, AMP, I did a lot of work with, for example, they could send you into negotiations and you really had a lot of levers to pull because you knew what was going on, you knew the personalities. It was a small industry in terms of the people. And do you like to negotiate? What do you mean by that? No. Uh, <laughs> well, it's, yeah. for a lot of people, it's confronting. But uh, as an I, investment banker, you, you've got to be able to do it. I don't know if I like it. It's, life's about negotiation. And I think what I've always tried to do and I've learned over the years is just to be straightforward. So I don't look at, I don't see my style of negotiation as being a negotiator in a, in a classical sense of, you know, some sort of chess game of tactical, um, starting at, you know, extreme positions and then whittling being whittled back and playing mind games, I like to think that I'm very straightforward and that's what I try and be and just say, this this is what we'll do, and these are the terms, and try and agree it. And, and it saves a lot of time, I can tell you that. Eventually, that group that kept merging with different groups eventually were taken out by UBS, the, the big Swiss global bank, and you went into that uh, company here, you were hugely successful in Australia, but then you got the job to go on the international scene, as we said in the intro. Was that a surprise or did you lobby for that? Was that the next step? No, Ad- Adelaide, Sydney, London, is I, that how you I, thought I it? lobbied against it. I didn't really want to do it. I'd become the head of investment banking at, at UBS and I was, I don't know what I was, 28 or something. It's a stressful, grinding job and it probably, you know, we were number one in debt capital markets, equity capital markets in M&A. So it was, we were really strong. I was working with people I'd worked with a long time. It was very comfortable. But it never ending. We it's were, day ne- in, day Never day ending. Out. It's hard work. Like it's anyone that, that thinks, and we got paid a lot of money, um, but it was really hard work and really stressful and long hours. But I enjoyed it and, and I enjoyed the people I worked with enormously. I think what I learned then about myself was I'm somebody once once we became market leader and it then for me it became a bit of a chore. I actually I found then what one of the things I like doing is building businesses rather than managing businesses, if that makes sense. And managing a bunch of investment bankers, I can tell you, is not fun. Um, they're always complaining. They always want more. They're always hard done by. They'd be always compliant. <laughs> oh, never, oh, never, never compliant. And uh, you know, you're always apologising for not paying them enough. And so it's it, it was a grind, and there was a, a lot of pressure for me to to move to either New York or London, and I didn't really want to do it. They made it worth my while, so eventually they convinced me, and I, I did it, and I moved to London. And what was that like, an Aussie in London, but actually working on the international scene as opposed to just an Aussie working for Aussie companies in London? You were you were global, global head. Global, yeah. Look, we it was an enormous business, so it was you know a lot of the business was CMBS in, in the US. It was quite a different business to what I was used to in Australia, but remember it, 
a lot of what I did in, in Australia was also quite international, particularly with Westfield. We were doing a lot uh, in the US. And so I had clients like Westfield. I, I was you know, heavily involved when Westfield got into the UK, for example, in buying into some assets there. And they were complex deals for them to break into that market. It wasn't easy. It wasn't The, the English don't just roll out the red carpet. They didn't, they didn't back then. Especially for Antipodeans. That's eh? right. Antipode, you, you, get to, you get to learn that phrase pretty quickly, or colonials or whatever they, they call you. It was interesting, but it, it was at a time soon after I moved, my boss the, who convinced me to go, he left. The, the global head of the investment bank was fired. And so things always change in investment banking. I was sort of never really settled in, into it. I was never that um, comfortable. I spent a lot of time in the US. We had a great business there and we you know, great people. It was a good business, but I, I guess I just felt more and more I was becoming an administrator and, and you know, uh, that's just not me. I don't like, I just don't enjoy doing that. And, uh, and ultimately I wasn't. You know, I wasn't that happy with it. I just, but it sounds like a path that probably was good for you to go down to realise what you didn't want to do. It was good to live somewhere other than Australia, and that's it. Firmly taught me that I much prefer living in Australia. I used to have during the the uh, summer months, as it was in in the UK, every week I would get a VHS tape sent to me with the Sydney Swans game on it, and if it didn't come, I know that we lost. So I uh, <laughs> and I used to watch that, and you know, I, I was pretty keen. Ultimately, to come back because I felt that you know that would be that would be what I'd rather do. But, but I remember listening to something that you said. There was a trigger where UBS made an acquisition. Payne Weber was Payne Weber, yeah. And you didn't really like that. So that in your own mind, that was the thing. Well, why, yeah. why am I hanging around when they're doing stuff like this? Yeah, there was. I won't. I won't go into defamation laws are alive and well. <laughs> but uh, UBS acquired a, a brokerage business called Payne Weber, and I thought it was a pretty stupid transaction. Decisions were made. To, for example, they they moved they moved the global real estate business into the fixed income department, which I just thought was crazy because you know a big part of our business was e- was equity and M and A. So I didn't you know, sort of said, "Well, just hang in there. This is just part of the deal." And I wasn't that keen to hang in there. I just thought, "This is you know, I just don't need this." And I was very happy to come home if I if I could, and I eventually found a way where I could do it. So I did. So you got home and you retired, thirty five feet up. Yep. Working in the school tuck shop, uh, very good. Getting chicken, good, good for the first week. Uh, that was good. It's great. I can I can make a chicken sandwich better than most people. <laughs> no, that was that was good. I had six months off. I came back. I joined the Sydney Swans board in. Uh, this is back in. How did that come about? How you were approached, or did you uh, go knocking on the door? No, Richard Collis, who's who's a very good friend of mine, and he was the uh, chief executive of Armstrong Jones, one of my clients, mm-hmm. and he had some business interest in Singapore when I was living there, and he he I used to talk to him. From time to time, and he knew, you know, he knew I was a passionate Sydney Swans fan. And he came up and he said, "Look, do you want to join the board?" Because I told him I was going to move back. Uh, well, this wasn't public at this stage, but I said I'm going to try and move back in six months or so. And he said, "Do you want to join the board?" And we had dinner and shook hands. And I said, "You know, that sounds good. I'll do that." So I came back and I thought, "That's what I'll do." Childhood dream. Yes. Well, I didn't. Childhood dream was actually to play, not to be on the board. <laughs> Next best. Uh, I was I was only thirty five, so you know, Buddy's thirty six. So I probably could have had a couple of seasons, but uh, the only thing that stopped that was ability. But I digress. I came back and did that, and that was great. But then I had a few clients calling me saying, "Can you help us with this, including Westfield? Have a look at this." And I sort of got drawn back into doing, you know, what I guess my core skills, which was which was real estate investment banking. And I did try some other things, small things on the side. And I that's one of the, that taught me another lesson, which was um, it's advice I often give to people, you know, when they 
you know, they retire or finish a career and, w- and want to do something different is be careful doing something different because you can find that it, it's not, you know, what you, you don't know what you don't know and it's, you know, there's a lot of safety in, in sticking to what you know. What you've learned. Just on that then, before we move on to post your retirement, your first retirement, in your book, What Matters, you give a pyramid of different types of employees. Where do you fit into that? Have you self, self-diagnosed? Uh, um we have a look, there's, I, a, there's a number of categories. I hope I'm, I hope I'm not the bad egg. <laughs> because, I, because you have been to the top, so you've been able to go through the different Well, I write, I write the book, so of course I'm going to define <laughs> myself at the top. Look, it's, you know, I think different people have different personalities and, and capabilities, and, and the main purpose of that, of that chapter, talking about the types of employees, very early on when I was at, at UBS, I, just observing people, I came to the view, and I used to tell everyone that I work with that wanted to listen, that, you know, some people... Are capable of getting to a certain point, and then that's it. And that's you know that's not revolutionary um, management um, uh, speak. It, it's it's clear people. That, I think the saying is you get promoted one one step beyond your, your incompetence or whatever it is. Some people you could see they get to their level and they can't go any any further. They just can't. They haven't got the. You know, and I, as a manager of people at UBS, again, I found it you know one of the more difficult things to do. But you know it it also taught me to be quite direct, blunt if you like, but direct with people. And that is to have a discussion with somebody who's got high ambition and to have to sit down with them and say, you just don't have the ability to go beyond what you're doing now. This is a hard message, but that's, I'm trying to help you. Your best thing is to get where you are now. Just be really good at it and don't, you're not going to get to the next stage. You're living in the real world here and this is this is how it is. That's a bit make or break for them. How they respond would be interesting. Typically people respond well, some don't, some they're ambitious and and you know, I've seen over the years many people feel that well that's a very unfair analysis of them and they, and they go somewhere else and and you watch and almost always if you've had the ability to work with someone closely and observe them and, and you know what their strengths and weaknesses are, you see them go and do it and you wish them well and, and they fail. But those conversations are terrific. I remember we were talking before we came into this discussion about what we studied and I got a job as a summer clerk in a law firm. And At the end of the eight weeks, my designated partner said to me, come into my room, Matthew, you're not going to make a good lawyer. There's something better out there for you. And that was the best conversation I've ever had, even though it was yeah. hard to take at the time. Yeah, look, I think, very direct. I think brutal honesty is underestimated, and I think the kindest thing you can do for people in a in a work environment is is be brutally honest. And I always try and do that as much as I can. It, it you know, to be honest, it's become more difficult in two thousand and twenty two than it was in in nineteen ninety five or whatever two thousand even twenty years ago. People are different. The new, younger generation, I sound old when you say that, but the younger generation, you know, in some ways, different. They, they're not as accepting of of direct feedback. It's they've they've come through a school system where everybody wins a prize and everyone's praised. And when you're in the you know the the big league, if you if you like, whether it's in sport or in business, it's the big league, and and uh, people have to be able to accept hard messages if they're going to make it. And that's just the way it is. And but you have to be a lot more careful with how you deliver messages today than. 20 years ago. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting time. You get back into work and then JP Morgan turn up and decide, well, come work for us and they buy your business. Was that a good move? Oh, very good move. Um, and was it an enjoyable time working for the Americans? You obviously worked for the Swiss. The Swiss. With, with a lot of independence in Australia when you were here, but 
The Americans seem to be a bit more overreaching than, than most other multinationals. Oh, look, I would say with global investment banks, and I say this with, with great respect, they're all different, but they're all the same. Um, they're just differently the same. JP Morgan, it's a fantastic company. It's obviously, you know, the, the brand name. One of the things that attracted me to, to JP Morgan is I just think it's a wonderful brand name, you know, trust and um, strength, balance sheet strength, and that, that bore out in the, in the global financial crisis. It was good. One of the reasons I did it was... It was client-driven to some extent because I felt, as a uh, at the time, really a, a two, you know, two or three-man boutique. We just didn't have the the toolkit to provide the services to some of the clients that, you know, typically offshore and equities and other things. That and that toolkit included a balance sheet to help them when they balance, to balance sheet, money particularly or- equity capital markets, but also just global reach, the, the information you can get. And I just felt we didn't have that for the clients I had at the time, and I felt. A strong obligation to um, Chris Wyke and Julian Biggins, um, who were with me at that time, working in a very, very, very boutique environment. And I just felt I owed it to them as well to get them in a in a situation where they're going to learn more because they're going to be around more people and and have greater resources than I could provide. And you know, frankly, you know, as a one man band as I was as a senior. Uh, banker. And I was working on two, three M&A deals at one time and it, it just wasn't sustainable. Where did you first meet Chris and Julian? Was it there or is it when you started up again? I met Chris in London when I when I moved to London as the global head of real estate and this young kid, I looked up at my, from my desk and he was standing there and it was Chris and he, he, he said, oh, hello, I'm Chris Wyke and I'd like to um, have a chat. And back then at, at at UBS, it was a pretty snobby. I mean, most of the managing directors had two assistants and a driver and all sorts of nonsense. To speak to a, a you know a managing director, let alone a global head of something, was extraordinary. And I said, okay. <laughs> so we had a chat. And he said, I I don't like the team I'm working. Can I come work in your team? And I said, okay. No one else wants to work for me, so why not? <laughs> so we got on really well. And then it, uh, he moved to Singapore. So I then I moved to Singapore, actually following him at that point. And then when I came back, he he then moved to. UBS in Australia, and I poached him to come and work in my boutique. And Julian, he he had formed a, a bond with Julian, who worked at UBS in research, and that's how Julian came about. So we've worked; to, the three of us have worked together. Chris, I've worked with him since uh, was it nineteen ninety nine, and Julian since early two thousand. So we've worked together a long, long time. And so you, you spend that time at JP Morgan. You, you're running basically Australia, so another big job. But then you strike out on your own some six years later. How long was that in the thinking? Uh, it was in Chris and Julian's thinking. They, they, I talked them off the ledge a couple of times. They wanted, they wanted to go and do something on their own, and I, um, they spoke to me about it. I, I said, I don't think you should do it. <laughs> but eventually it was just unstoppable. They, they were determined you know, to go out on their own and do something. And we had honest discussions about it and had honest discussions with JP Morgan um, about them wanting to go. And I, I was sort of... Myself, I was ambivalent. I was sort of thinking about retiring again, to be honest, because it had been really hard. It had been really hard because we'd been through trying to rebuild JP Morgan, which which went really well, hiring people and you know firing a lot of people as well, which wasn't easy. But then the GFC hit, which was a that really, was through that period. really, really, really difficult time, most difficult time in my career by a long way. And they wanted to go and do something, so they did. They wanted me to go with them. I didn't want to do that. They went out on their own. They met Ken Molas because he'd approached me about doing something. I said, I don't want to do anything. <laughs> but he'd met them at that stage, so they said we want to do something with Mollis and company, and so they went and did it. And I didn't 
So Ken was a former UBS colleague, but stationed in America and, and just formed his own company and listed it. Is so that he, right? Ken, Ken ran, ran the, uh, he joined UBS pretty much as I was leaving. So I never met him at UBS. I didn't know him. He ultimately left pr- pretty much the same reasons that I left for, but um, I, I told him I worked out a lot quicker. No, he, he left uh, years, many years after. He ran UBS Investment Bank. He's very, I mean, he's a you know, very famous and good banker. And he, he just kept pestering me and saying, look, you know, Chris and Julian are great, but really want you to come and join. And I said, I've got no interest in working for a US boutique investment bank in Australia. I'm not going to do it. He said, what would, what would get you to do it? And Ken and I have just always had, to, from day one, sometimes when you meet somebody, you just click. I said, look, Ken, the only way I'm doing this is if, you know, it's a 50-50 partnership and then I, I might do it and I'd want to have a, an equities business because I ECM something um, I think is important to real estate. And he said, oh, how's so that? So you're doing that thinking on the, on the run? As people were wanting to do it, and you were. Oh, I was. Back. It was. It was over a number of discussions. But the probably the funniest thing was when you know Ken's been around, and he's he said, "Well, what joint venture like fifty fifty? How will this work?" And his he's told me subsequently his thinking was, "Here we go, another Aussie," because he dealt with the Australian. He he dealt with Chris Mackay and Matthew Ground, so he he had this particular view of Australians that they were very um, parochial and. Um, and greedy, I guess. Um, <laughs> he, and he said, "So what? What's the deal?" And uh, I said, "Well," and he was thinking I was going to say, "Well, you you put up this money, and I'll put in the the hours, and I'll go and build it for you." But and I said, "Well, why don't we just put in five million bucks each? And if we need, if that's not enough, we'll, we'll agree to put in another five if we have to." And that's it. And he said, "What? Well, that's it? You'll put money in?" <laughs> and I said, "Yeah." <laughs> and he said, "Done." Okay, done. But in that sense, that takes all, what would you call it? You would never feel obliged to him at that point because you are genuinely equal partners yeah, when you put money in. So it gives you equal footing. Yeah, the, the simplicity of it is what I think made it work, that it was very simple. And from from day one, I mean, we genuinely, I say this, we've never had a, a disagreement. And we often joke, you know, Ken and I joke about that. We just don't, we don't know how to disagree. Even where we, we've had some situations where we could have, we just end up agreeing very quickly. And it worked well because there was total alignment that was, you know, we were on the hook. I, I put my money in and he put his money in and, and, and we were aligned. And, it and did you know at that stage when you were setting out what it should look like? Because I said in the introduction of Mini Macquarie Bank and, and there's been times where people in the market, when, when you first listed, which was a few years later, I said, this is, you know, Austin Powers. It's, it's a mini me of Macquarie Bank. But I've, I've heard you say it, it more replicated SBC, the early days when you were working. Did you formulate anything in your mind what it should look like and where you're heading, especially with the asset management business? Look, Matthew, I had a detailed 10-year investment plan, business plan, <laughs> and uh, financial model. No. Um, no, look, in, in my mind, it was, I had, yeah, DBSM was probably the model that I had in my mind, and but it wasn't strictly trying to you know, mirror it. It was just thinking that's sort of the, the model where, where we're sort of entrepreneurial, more merchant banking, where we just, we come in every day um, and we work out what we're going to do. Our, our business plan uh, at the time was, let's get some money and some good people and do stuff. That was our business plan, and that's pretty much what we did. And we got we got plenty wrong. And that's you know if you if you read uh, my book, what matters, I think I say multiple times. If you're starting a business, my advice to anybody is start small, don't start big. Because if you start big and you make mistakes, they're big mistakes. If you start small and make mistakes, they're small mistakes, and you can fix them. What, what do you mean start small? Small costs, small overheads. S- correct. You want to start where one of the the tool management tools that we religiously applied. Uh, from day one was a simple cash flow that looked at how much cash do we have in the bank, and we had a sounds little, pretty novel. It well, <laughs> it, it 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 is for a lot of people it is, but we you know we were um, 
very focused on having enough cash that if we couldn't do any deals and generate any revenue, that we could at least, I think the, I think it was nine months, we had to be able to pay people's salaries and rent and uh, all of our costs for nine months if we didn't generate any income. That was our guiding light and we never had to draw down on the additional capital. We were profitable every year. The first year, I think we had to defer our bonus payments to to Chris, Julian and myself, but we were profitable every year. When you're starting a business like that and individuals have worked in big organisations and got paid well over that period because they were good, but they also got paid well, was it hard for the individuals to get started on that basis? Because as a business owner, it's a different scenario. It's, it's much more of a capitalist model. You only get paid what you make, not because there's, there's an institution under you that can keep paying you because of years and years of establishment. Was that hard to get people over the line on I, I think hiring it, people and so on? I think it. you've got to hire the right people. If, if you hire the wrong people and their mentality is, I don't pay to go to work, I get paid, and they can't see the vision of what, what you're trying to build. So I think as, as founders, if you like, it's relatively straightforward because you, you, know, you know what you've signed up for. Um, as you grow and bring people in, it gets more and more difficult because people expect to get paid and they need to get paid pay for their you know, kids' schooling and yep. food. Everyone's got obligations. So I think, again, one of the lessons that we learned, one of the filters when hiring people is some people, and you'd know this from, from your career, they can work really effectively in big organisations where they've got you know, lots of resources at their fingertips and you may say also they can hide a little bit because they're big organisations. You know, when you work in a small organisation um, and it's it's direct drive, you can't hide. And so you, one of the filters is to spot people who, you know, will they really be successful? Even if, they, even if they've been very successful in a large investment bank, will they be successful in a small investment bank where they haven't got the balance sheet and all these things? So that would that was a decision. We made some mistakes with some people who, would come and you know the way I'd look at it is that they'd have to learn, be retrained. That the phone doesn't ring, you have to actually call <laughs> people. And they and but some people just couldn't conceptualise that. They'd say, "Well, the phone has to ring." And well, what are you offering me? Why am I here? No one owes you business, so you had to go and get it. And that's good in a sense that if you can survive that those early years, you actually develop a culture uh, and people who are very self sufficient and driven. And you know they're not they're not sitting around waiting for it some, develops somebody. develops culture to, in itself. Yeah. Just that simple yeah. hiring policy. So you then tapped into, as I said in the intro, you know the Civ funding scheme that allowed you to. Well, that was part of it, but that ability to raise funds, then you could get into asset management. I presume that's the way it worked. What ticked you off onto that? Special scheme, and we can talk about it. It's obviously under pressure at the moment, but it was a real business builder for Molus as it was then. We started. Our asset management business, I think in 2012, probably on a high from winning the premiership, um, <laughs> thought, let's start an asset management business. And we, You weren't chair then, though, were you? No, I wasn't was chair. It? No, no, you have to rub that in. No, no, that was Richard Collis. We started an asset management business and we thought, well, how do we do this? And we always had the vision that that was you know, where we wanted to, to head. So that was always in your head? That yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean- Like your clients that you had advised in property, because a lot of the assets are alternate assets, but around property. Yeah. Yeah, no, we'd always seen asset management as as the ultimate goal, and the re- the reason is just annuity income streams, and it's it's a, a more valuable business than you know a deal by deal. So you know that nine months is in the bank. You know, well, we got. I I, I was very excited when we got to the point eventually where our just our annuity income, and this was many years ago, but our annuity income covered our overheads, and we didn't have to do anything. We could do no deals and we'd still be okay. It's very different. You didn't one. want to tell anyone that though. Well, it's very, no, you definitely didn't want to tell anyone. You keep a secret. But once you're listed, of course, you have to tell everyone everything. So it's, that's another story. We got into asset management. We, 
the first deals were really, you know, friends and family and me putting money in and we went and bought a little shopping centre in Hillsville in Victoria uh, and we just got started. Andrew Martin, who, who heads our asset management, joined us. We got started and when you get started and something like that, you just, you just try and find opportunities keep and going. do stuff. We just through some other business we were doing, we, we were dealing with a client in Singapore. We had dinner with him. He was talking about significant investor visas in Singapore and other parts of the world. Our ears pricked up. Thought that, and Richard Collis was was involved with us as well. He's chairman of Arisa Management Business, and we thought that's a great idea. And we took that idea to um, the state government, Liberal state government in New South Wales, and then, and then we went to the federal Labor government and a lot took, of lobbying. Took to the idea. It actually wasn't that hard because it was a pretty compelling, and it's, you know, I believe it remains a very compelling case to you know what it does for Australia. To, when a lot of capital is being exported, it actually brings a lot of much needed capital into Australia, and it's permanent capital really. Um, and it goes into, uh, you know, creating employment, building businesses. So we took it to the federal Labor government. They liked the idea, and it's been in ever since. And for us, I guess, you know, it was obviously open to everybody. It wasn't just for us, but we were clearly, you know, an early adopter because it was our idea. But And it's been an important part of our business. It's a much smaller part of our business today, and it was always a very conscious effort to not be reliant on any any one thing. I mean, one thing about MA Financial is we're highly diversified and that, that's very deliberate. It just means you, there's always something to worry about and there's always something to be happy about. So um, that's, that's But it's life. risk management. So before we leave the SIFT scheme, which has been under review with Claire O'Neill from the federal side just recently, do you think it stays where it is? It's been questioned. And what what does it mean for Molus, which is now known as MA Financial? Is, is it going to be part of the long term, do you think, or do you think it, the writing's on the wall? Look, I think there's going to be a review of the the entire migration system, which will, will be formally announced shortly, I believe. We'll see what happens there. You know, We think there's a compelling argument in support of the SRV program. The SRV program has been reviewed by government and, and various departments within government multiple times over its life, it's not. This is not. Um, so, as it stands now, just so the the listeners are aware of it, SIV. So, people wanting to come to Australia can invest up to so so five million. significant investor visa, and they they need to invest five million dollars. And there are a number of other requirements, residency requirements, in terms of time spent in Australia. And there are very strict requirements how that money is invested and has to be invested in things such as venture capital, private equity. Productive assets. It's as much a source of capital for the country. It's far more that and, and a driver of business and commerce than it is a, a migration tool. I mean, there, there are only something like 350 SIV visas granted every year. So it's very small numbers, very, very small numbers, but it brings a lot of capital in. Um, it's brought in billions and billions of dollars of capital, and that has a multiplier effect in terms of tax paid investment into businesses and funding businesses. So you know, you'll often read in the newspapers that MA Financial has backed a, um, some startup or tech business or some business in some industry, that's typically SIV money, for example. So when you're seeing that, that's that's the SIV. So you're facilitating that money yeah, for them. That, that, yeah, that's right. So we'll, we'll see what happens. It's a review, so you never want to predict what's going to happen in that environment. But you know, whatever the outcome, we're in great shape and you know, we're confident of our future, whatever the outcome might be. And so in 2017, you decide to list on the ASX. You're luxuriating in being private and you list. Is that is that because you wanted to give your employees, which had obviously grown by 2007 into quite a big business, the opportunity to share in the ownership? Was it 
the access to capital, which we've just been talking about, another form of capital where you can grow your asset business. Because in the harsh reality of the world, being listed is a tough environment. You've got other people to answer to, including myself. Yeah, correct. It's, your, it's all your <laughs> fault. You're the horrific investors. Partially, it was just copying what Moles and Company had done because they'd listed and I thought, that's a good idea. And said, Ken, should we do that? And he said, yeah, why not? There were multiple drivers. Uh, one was access to capital because our business, you know, we knew we had a great business model and we had great people. We were capital constrained, and, and as we were as we were building, particularly our asset management bi- business, it does require capital. I mean, it simply does. At that point, a lot of the capital was coming from me personally, uh, and there was a limit to how much I could keep up with the growth of the business. I, mean, I was at that limit, and so it was it was partly for access to capital. It was partly the ability to pay staff with shares. It's very difficult in a private company to do that under the tax laws. It's got a little bit easier in, in more recent years, but still it's a significant disadvantage to a listed company in terms of how you can pay people with paper, get alignment and all those sorts of things in a tax efficient way. And so that was that was a significant driver. And it was really about future and growth and, and it's you know it's delivered that in spades. We've raised money I think twice since we listed. And you did a buyback? We did buyback. We're doing another one. We're very careful managing our capital. There's a lot of flexibility in that capital, I suppose. That's what we're saying. Yeah, look, there is. And we're, you know, between staff and and Mollison Company, you know, we own 43% of the business or whatever it is. So we're very mindful of shareholder value. And and that's, you know, we put investors in our funds come first, shareholders come second, staff come third. I mean, that's how we, we think. And it's really easy to think that and, way. And why investors first rather than your own shareholders? I know, I know you're looking after all of them, but if you're going to categorize or prioritize. Well, I think you have a fiduciary duty to people who invest money with you and you'd know the pressure of managing other people's money. It, it, it does bring a, a degree of pressure and responsibility. But ultimately, I look at it very simply, it's a virtuous circle. And if, if you're looking after the people who entrust you with their savings to, to manage that money for for them, then the business will, will be strong and it'll be good for shareholders. So I think it comes from that belief. If you do things for shareholders at the expense of, in, of your of your investor clients or even your you know, clients in your investment banking business, you know I think ultimately that's that's not good for shareholders. So it's it's a pretty easy distinction. You've grown the business to over seven billion of assets under management, so it's a substantial business now. But come to twenty twenty three years after you've listed, you decide to retire again and hand over the running of MA Financial, which was Mollus Australia, but MA Financial, you renamed it, to Chris and Julian. What what drove that decision and has it been a good decision? Are you happy to be hands off and let them do it or do you come in and go, what are these guys doing? Sure, can't they see the opportunity here? It was something I thought a lot about. It was, I'd been CEO, I guess, since we started the business, so 10 years at that point. And I, I just started to feel that one, I was, I was getting tired, and I didn't want to, I didn't want to hold back the business. I didn't think it was fair. On, a bit of burnout, or, or just age and different part of your life. I what do you mean by age? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we're pretty close in age, so yeah, no, I can sympathise. No, no, it's not, <laughs> not, not burnout. I just felt that they had more energy and than I did, and I thought they could do a better job, and. I was at a point where I, I certainly didn't want to leave the business. I'm still the, the largest individual shareholder. I didn't want to leave the business, but I felt that businesses and any organization is stronger if you're prepared to be honest with yourself and say, look, it's just not what I want to do. I don't want to be sitting in meetings talking about comp and you know diversity and IT solutions and all these sorts of things that you have to do as a CEO. It's not what I wanted to do anymore. Um, it was a really difficult decision and it and it was one I chatted to Jeff Brown, our chairman, about for some time. He was a great 
um, sounding board, and as was as was Ken Molas, because I just felt that was going to be right for the business and for me, and I wouldn't have done it if it wasn't right for the business. It's a big step, though. Yeah, it's probably. I mean, people probably see it as an unusual step, but I I also had the advantage. I saw what we've done at the Sydney Swans. You know, when um, Richard Collis stepped down as chairman, I became chairman. When Paul Roos stepped down as coach, and John Longmire became came coach. I've seen a good handover and how you can do it. I wasn't going anywhere. It's not like suddenly some big change. Chris and Julian and I said we've worked together for for many, many years. So we know each other, you know, we can finish each other's sentences. And it was a safe pair of hands. And I just felt we'd be better under their leadership than mine. I'll still be there. We'll work out what I do. The idea was just to establish the MA Academy, which is what the book, what matters, sort of that, that, that's how that came about during COVID. And that's to foster talent within MA Financial. Yeah, I mean, younger people. Correct. I mean, we the great things we've done at the Sydney Swans, and I've observed, is the power of the the Swans Sydney Swans Academy, and not just in creating elite talent, but more importantly, growing the brand, growing the game more broadly. With thousands of kids who've gone through that, you know, what's the difference between an academy and and formal education? The big difference, and in the MA Academy, it's the when we're teaching anything we're doing, whether it's regulatory training or leadership training or skills negotiations training, whatever it might be, media training, you're being taught by people who are professionals at the top of their game, hopefully. You're being taught the most current approaches and methods. You're not it's not a it's not an academic institution, it's a practical academy. And that's been hugely successful and it's one of the things that's enabled us to attract people, talented people, into our business. But also one of the things I'm really proud of is is our retention rate of talent is really high when you know we we rarely lose people. Um, and obviously, this, we've got five hundred and fifty people or something, so we there's turnover. But our key people have been there for many many years, and people that come they love it and they don't they don't go. And I'm a firm believer that if if you continue to train people, one they want to stay, and two they they progress more more quickly and they become more valuable to the organisation and. And we help them become the best versions of themselves. And is it as exhilarating being the coach as it is the player when it comes to the workspace? It's sort of funny because not it's not like football because you're a playing coach. It's like the old days. You're a playing coach. <laughs> you know, I'm still involved. I still, you know, am on the tools. If you if you want to use that expression, I'm very much involved in aspects of the business, and that can be, I mean, you know, advising James Packer on Crown, for example. Last couple of years, I still do work with clients on on our advisory business. I'm still very involved in when we acquired Finshore, for example, um, which has been a great acquisition. Involved in the transaction aspects of that and various things within our business as they emerge. If I'm wanted or I think I can add value, I'm either is there's a request, can you come and help with this, or I just barge in and say I'm going to help with this because <laughs> I think I can help. So it's it's one of the two. But you know, it's it just given me a bit more flexibility in my life, and I do a lot of different things. Yeah, um, write books, write books, chair football teams, clubs. Yeah, that's it. So um, you know, it's been good, and it's and and I couldn't have been prouder of Chris and Julian and the whole leadership team, just how well they've done, and particularly in COVID when it was really you know challenging, and I you know I was very busy doing matters AFL and Sydney Swans at the time, I can tell you. But the way in which they they dealt with that crisis, batting down the hatches and we came out stronger than ever, you know, I genuinely say um, that they did a better job than I would have done it. You know, they, were, they were fantastic. And before we leave MA Financial, decade or so on now, if another decade on, what, what do you see? What will you look like? What's the aspiration? I uh, just hope I'm around. Um <laughs> Don't play this back if something goes wrong. I think the great thing with our business is I don't know where it heads because 
as you run and, and build a business, there are many ups and downs and it's snakes and ladders. And you know, we've had many ups and downs. You mentioned the SIV um, issues recently. And, and it's, been a, it's been a hard year as well with we're in a bear market. It's a, it's a really tricky market, and but we've got a great business. And who knows, if you'd have asked me three years ago, would we manage $90 billion in mortgages, which we now do through Finshore, I would have said, what are you talking about, Matthew? That, that's not even on our radar. We've got a lot of smart people. We've got a lot of capital now. We've, you know, we look at a lot of things, so we could go in many different directions. You know, All I hope for is that the businesses that we're in, we manage them carefully and we grow them. And then if we go into new things, it's done in a very considered way. We, you know, again, we very much try and follow the start small, test it out, make sure it's what you want to do, that it's, it's a good business, that we know what we're doing. And then once we do, let's go for it. That's been our, our MO, if you like, for MA. And we'll continue that. And I, I just think that, you know, multiple of our businesses can just um, grow exponentially over well, the years. Well, you've got enough creative horsepower within the ranks it'll take you to where you need to go i suppose we have and our businesses are highly complementary of each other there's they're not a random assortment of of activities that we're involved in the, the, there's a virtuous circle within them you know the asset management business for example is really a really vital component in our lending business and i think, I think people probably don't understand that very well but you know in lending for example you need capital one of the reasons that lending businesses might trade on lower multiples than um, an asset management business, for example, is because of the the view well it needs capital. Or we, we, if you have an asset management business alongside a lending business, which we do, you can fund a lot of the the, the capital requirements through mm. funds, yep. manage funds, and and that's virtuous virtual circle. So it's an ecosystem where we like to say we build you know try and build a better mousetrap, and I think we've you know we've we've done that, and the tools are there, and and the opportunities really for us are endless. So let's go to the other great love, which we've. We've hit upon a few times the Sydney Swans. It's been interesting. I look at the Swans now. It's been a highly successful club. You've been there on the board for a long time and chair for quite a while. Does the Swans culture now reflect the chairman's values, do you think? Because the Swans are well known for the quick rebuild. They're already back in a grand final just this year after everyone thought they'd spent some time rebuilding their ranks. But in the meantime, you obviously build an incredible facilities down, down at Moore Park you've rebooted the team everything seems to be heading in the right direction it's happened awfully quickly to the outsider it does so do, do you think that's a fair question does does the cadence of the swans now reflect the chairman and what he's used to no i don't think it does i think look the secret to the sydney swans is no is no secret and i think any good culture comes from consistency and just getting better and that's that's what we always try and do and i, I try and apply that to MA Financial is that we just try and get better. So it's evolution, not revolution. A lot of clubs, you you know, if you observe, go through periods of turmoil where there's sackings and board overthrows and all sorts of carry on. From the very early days in Sydney when it was when South Melbourne moved to Sydney, you know, it was crisis after crisis. You had Jeffrey Edelston, you know, it was just crazy times, um, going broke and all these sorts of things. You know, really since Richard Collis, you know, it's really I. I firmly would put the credit you know, in the hands of people like Richard Collis, came in and really established a really solid foundation in my time, certainly as chairman, um, but as a director, just as John Longmire's time as coach, senior coach, or Andrew Ireland's time when he was head of football and then CEO, Tom Harley, head of football and CEO. It's a continuation of the culture. It's adjusting it slightly with as times change and you know, circumstances change, but keeping the same core values and approach to and a lot of passion things. there no doubt there's a lot of passion and 
you know, one of the the core values that we have as a football club and, and is uh, that we are a football club. And it might sound very basic, but we're we're building new facilities, which are, I genuinely believe are the, going to be the best um, training administration facilities of any sporting club in Australia. Probably one of the best in the world. Massive built, a ten thousand square meter building, costing seventy million dollars. I'm not sure how we've we've managed to do it, but somehow we have. <laughs> it's um, a big number for a football club. It is, and we you know, COVID and everything else uh, conspired to. Uh, to, to kill it. But when we finish this building on the boardroom door or adjacent to the boardroom door um, will be the words, we are a football club. And that that's at the core of everything we do. Our DNA is we never lose sight of the fact that we're a football club. Um, we're a professional football club. We're a big football club. We're the most supported sporting club in Australia, 1.8 million fans. A lot of responsibility. A lot of responsibility. I know we bring a lot of joy to people. The players inspire people, the, you know, the girls and the guys, and we're very mindful of that. We we want to be, we want our players and we want our club to be a great role model in society. But we never lose sight of the fact that our core business is winning football games, winning premierships. Wish we could win more, uh, but that is our, that that's what we're about. And if you lose sight of that, it'd be like MA Financial losing sight of the fact that you're a business and you're there to make profits and EPS growth. Ironically, your Chairman at MA Financial, Jeff Brown, the chairman down at Collingwood, one of the arch rivals of the Swans. It's interesting you can answer to him around the board table, but obviously you go head to head. Interestingly, also was the period which which is a lot more serious with, with the Adam Goods incident, and you you were very vocal in support of Goods and what he went through. While Collingwood, with, with the missteps by Eddie Maguire at different times, so does that, has that relationship ever been frosty? Because Brown worked with Maguire at various times. Is it is it get complex, or have you always had a tight relationship with your chairman at MA Financial? Uh, my my relationship with Jeff Brown never had an argument, never had a a, a crossword. The only but it's good to beat him in a semi. Well, the only there's, <laughs> there's, there's only been twice he's refused to talk to me, and that's for a week after the the round twenty two game, whatever it was that we beat them, and then after the prelim he didn't speak to me for a while. But I digress. We have a great relationship. When we listed in two thousand seventeen, we needed an independent chairman. I wanted an independent chairman. I thought long and hard about who that might be. I asked. I did a lot of checking, and I'd, I, I knew a lot of people. A lot of my friends knew Jeff Brown very well. I'd never met him. I phoned him after having um, an introduction had been made. Asked him if he would be interested in being our chairman. Met with him. Spoke with him. Got on like a house on fire. He said to me straight away, "You realise that you know I'm very close friends with Eddie McGuire and I'm a Collingwood <laughs> supporter." I, I said, "Well, that's I like Eddie too, so it's not a problem." Being a Collingwood supporter is you know, clearly it's not a good thing, but you know we can overlook it. And um, <laughs> he he's been fantastic for us, and we look, we get on very well. And at the end of the day, footy's a game, and we we both get that. And, and he's done uh, well this year. He's off to a fly as the chairman. So oh, look, it's easy in the first Maybe year. Maybe he's got a little bit see of how he goes, financial see how he goes after, after twenty-one <laughs> years, which is what I've done. So. Uh, We'll see. No, he's look. He'll do a great job with Collingwood, and he's fantastic. Well, good luck on trying to win the premiership. Didn't quite happen this year, but I'm sure it's not too far away. I wouldn't mind just before we finish up talking about what matters in a little bit more detail. As I think I said to you as we we're walking in, I felt bad reading it because I've been in charge or, or worked with teams in the past, and, and there was lots of things that pointed out that I should have been doing. But I thought it was quite interesting what you and the book's worth to read to anyone who's had to manage people or involved in an organisation because it gives a lot of good tips which you've talked about at length during our talk. I thought it was quite interesting. You said times have changed a bit. 
We've got different expectations from employees, how you treat people, not that we ever treat people bad, but how you approach it, how you deliver messages, new generation of people, and at the moment who have got a selection of jobs because of low unemployment and demand for workers everywhere. Do you feel like your book's still relevant and, and that leadership is still relevant as it used to be and, and is it key to any organisation? I only wrote it a year ago. <laughs> I hope it's still relevant. Still things, for, still, things are changing quickly. It's still for sale at Booktopia. Um, look, I, I think it's, it's definitely relevant. One of the points I make in the book, and again, this is something I really learned from football, which a lot of this, as you know, if you read, read the book, there's a lot of football analogies and stories intertwined through the, the endless, boring uh, business stories. But one of the things I learned in football is to treat everybody differently. I don't know if you've read that bit or remember that bit, but it's a really important thing to understand. And a lot of, you know, it's really easy and people often say, treat everybody the same, I treat everybody the same. Well, it's absolute rubbish. And you can't treat everybody the same because not everybody is the same. You need to, you know, just be straightforward about that. I mean, you, you are going to treat, you know, as, a, as a chairman of a football club, I'm going to treat a sort of, you know, a grassroots supporter who's just a lunatic footy fan and works in a brewery or whatever, differently that I'm going to I'm going to treat the prime minister if I'm chatting to the prime minister at the um, grand final you are going to you are going to treat them and talk to them differently and I think the same applies in business that you have to assess people and I think that's something you know I, I hope I'm reasonably good at is assessing people with a bit of EQ what they're like what their triggers are and what their personality type is just getting to know them and then you treat them appropriately based on that and some people you can be really direct with and blunt and they're the easy ones to deal with, I find, because you can just be straightforward. And other people, you've got to be a lot more gentle. And you have to be able to identify that and modify your behaviours to, to suit the circumstance. And I think if you can do that, you really are well, well established to deal with anybody and any situation. And you know, that's something we try and teach all of our people is, is you know, that that's what you've got to do. And if you try and treat everybody the same, I think you'll end up in a or, or whole world of pain. Yeah, well, I recommend everyone or anyone who's in that area to have a read because, I, as I said, I felt a bit guilty that I hadn't been doing a lot of the info or acting out a lot of the information. So I've got a bit to think about. We're at the end of our time, but in season one of Success and More Interesting Stuff, I've always finished up with a question and I know, and I might bring it back for you because I know you're a country music fan. I've heard you say that. It's in the book. <laughs> so the question I asked, Willie Nelson in 2020, he was 87 years old. He put out an album. So it said in, in one of his songs, our song, in this time that I've been given to fill my life with living, I hope I've done the best that I can do. So that was Willie at 87. Now you've had two retirements. It seems to me you've probably got another two or three left in you. Have you given us the best you can do? I hope not. I think it's more of the same. I mean, I, I never know what's going to happen. I mean, who, no, nobody does. One of my mottos in life, and I do, this sounds corny, but I actually do do it, is every year at uh, New Year's Eve, I think to myself, I'm going to be a better person next year. And Is that because you were a bad one last year or well, continuous improvement? Well, I think I became okay <laughs> about 10 years ago, but before that, not so good. <laughs> Um, no, look, I think it's just a good thing to reflect on the, the year that's gone and uh, we're getting to that time of the year now. Just reflect and be a better person next year, but also to keep doing interesting things. And you know, I think my future is going to be you know, MA Financials, very much going to be part of it. Sydney Swans, I've been chairman for nine years and on the board for 21 years. So that comes to an end eventually. Don't know when that'll be. I'm always 
hoping to do interesting things. I love doing things with Family Foundation, doing some things with the University of South Australia and some other things that I'm involved in. So who knows? Uh, I just hope I'm around to to do it. Well, you can go as long as Willie. You'll be well, another his, 30 odd years and another three or four yes, retirements. There would have been another, another podcast in it, I would have You thought. know, with Willie Nelson, if he's 87, there's, there's probably about 300 years on the clock. So uh, I hope <laughs> I've. Of living. Of living. I hope I've got better, uh, better mileage than that. Well, thank you. Thanks for the conversation today. Congratulations on legend of the investment banking scene in Australia. And MA Financials turned into quite a story and it's the book's not finished there yet. Congratulations. Thanks, man.